Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today we're speaking with Michael Honey, the Fred T. and Dorothy G. Hale Professor in the Humanities at the University of Washington, Tacoma. He is the author or editor of numerous books on Southern labor and civil rights, most recently Sharecropper's Troubadour, John L. Hancock's The Southern Tenant Farmers Union, and the African American. American song tradition. Today we're discussing the documentary that he directed and co-produced, Love and Solidarity, the story of Reverend James Lawson. Mike Honey, welcome to Working History. Yeah, thank you. So who is Reverend James Lawson? Can you give us a brief overview of his upbringing and how he became involved in movements for social justice? People who study the civil rights movement know pretty well who James Lawson is, but people who don't uh, or who are, you know, that's not their main area of research, usually maybe have never heard of him. Mm -hmm. But uh, he enters the picture in 1957 when Martin Luther King uh, has just finished the Montgomery bus boycott and Lawson has just spent three years in India studying Gandhi and working as a um, Christian missionary, and he comes to Oberlin College to get a graduate degree, and King comes to Oberlin to give a speech. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they sit down and talk very briefly, but then they realize that they're on the same page. Uh, They're born just a year apart. Lawson's born in 1928. King's born in 1929. Mm -hmm. Lawson has already gone to prison for a year and a half for refusing induction into the Korean War, even though he had a ministerial deferment, and he, uh, but he decided to send in his draft card. He was influenced by A.J. Musty, who was one of the prominent and also not very well-known philosophers and, and activists uh, of the nonviolent movement in the 20th century. And Lawson uh, is an African-American who was born in... Um, Pennsylvania, moved to Ohio. His father was a a minister, Methodist minister. Mm -hmm. His great-grandfather was a Methodist minister. His great-great-grandfather was an escaped slave uh, to Canada. Mm -hmm. And so um, really he has a heritage of black freedom movement struggle through his family and also a heritage of um, being a Methodist. And the Methodists were very strong against slavery. And... um, or at least part of the Methodist Church was. So when he meets King in 1957, Lawson really already has committed his life to nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And when he talks to King, they decide that the Montgomery bus boycott is not a one-off kind of thing, that it can be replicated elsewhere. And King asks him to come to the South and start working with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference And um, he drops out of his graduate school program and moves to Vanderbilt University, starts in another graduate program in theology. He's then also hired by the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which had pioneered in um, freedom rides and other kinds of activity earlier. And Lawson starts traveling around the South, sort of preparing the ground for nonviolent direct action. Mm -hmm. And most notably, he meets with um, black students and ministers in Nashville for over a year 
uh, talking about learning what nonviolence is and how it's done, and two, trying to decide what is the most important thing to do in Nashville, Tennessee. And the women in the group say the most important thing or the most obvious thing we could do is take down those signs in the downtown. Uh, we can't shop in the stores. We can't try anything on. We can't go to the restaurants. We have to go around the back or sit in a separate place. Mm -hmm. uh, the signs are demeaning, colored and white. So that becomes their target. And again, people who study this know that the Nashville sit-in movement was a remarkable, well-organized completely nonviolent and very effective uh, movement that did bring down all of those signs in downtown Nashville. Mm -hmm. So Lawson says King referred to this as the model movement. He then had Lawson for the next eight years uh, while King was still alive uh, doing nonviolent training workshops at least once a year. And he would train not only people like James Belville and Diane Nash and Bernard Lafayette in Nashville, and all those people would go out and become key organizers for SNCC, mm -hmm. but he also trained the Southern Christian Leadership Conference leadership in how you know, to effectively use nonviolence. So he was involved sort of behind the scenes. Uh, he was involved in the... Birmingham campaign in 63 and mm -hmm. Selma in 65, Chicago in 66, but sort of behind the scenes. So you wouldn't really identify him as part of the leadership. Uh, he did go to jail during the um, Freedom Rides in 1960, uh, which came out of the Nashville sit-in movement and was arrested and put in Parchman Prison along with a bunch of other people. Mm -hmm. So he had many arrests, and he was involved in uh, a lot of direct action himself. But his role primarily was as a teacher, and so that's why he's not very well known. Right. And so why did you choose him as uh, sort of the central figure for this documentary, number one? But number two, then, why did you, um, why did you select the title Love and Solidarity? Why did that really sort of capture what his story was all about? Well, a little background to the to the movie. Um, I was working as an as a consultant to a group called the Fetzer Institute in Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, this is a group that's a family foundation that is aimed at furthering love and forgiveness in the world. Um, John Fetzer owned the Tiger baseball team, the Detroit Tigers, mm -hmm. and Fetzer Broadcasting Network made a huge amount of money. And when he died, he willed his money to this institute. And uh, they have a beautiful facility there outside of uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Anyway, um, you don't go to them. It's not a grant-making organization. But they asked me if I would be a consultant for two years. And they were organizing an international conference in Assisi, Italy. So, so I did that. And... Basically, our job was to give away about a million dollars, uh, our coordinating committee. On, and our committee was labor and the crafts. And so um, as that process was going on, I said, well, if you really want to talk about labor and if you want to talk about love and forgiveness, 
I've got a good story for you. Their method of telling stories is basically through an exemplar, somebody who has personified the ideas of love and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Lawson uh, was an obvious example of that. And he's uh, he just turned 86 last fall. Uh, so he's still very active and he's still, you know, speaking. And so I knew that we could, if we could pin him down, um, he's traveling all the time. But if we could get a get some time with him, he would give us a, a wonderful interview. And mm-hmm. that's what happened. So that was sort of the origin of it. And the reason I did it as if I'm a historian, you know, I've written five books. So usually... I'm writing a book, but the people in the Fetzer Institute do a lot of film work. And they said, we'll give you the money to pay for doing the film. That's why people don't do films. They're so expensive. Sure, right. So, uh, and they also had um, a filmmaker, a man named Errol Weber from Baltimore, who was just moving to Hollywood to start a career there as a filmmaker. And so they hooked me up with him. Uh, so, you know, I didn't have the technical expertise, but uh, Errol Weber has that training. And so we teamed up and and made the film. And uh, I think it's, it's a pretty beautiful film, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in making a documentary versus writing a book, as, you, as you've noted, you, you are the author of, of, you know, several, several works. And how is this different? and sort of a unique way to present a story. How is the, you know, how is documentary film as a medium um, something that is able to present a story in a fundamentally different way than, say, writing it in a book? I learned a lot by doing this. um, And that was my question, you know, why is the film better uh, or not better, but different? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the way it's different is I've now shown this in different places around the country, sort of the trial run of the film before it was actually finished all the way. Um, I showed it at the AFL-CIO building in D.C. to their staff. I showed it at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. I showed it at the Labor and Working Class History Association meeting at Georgetown last spring. I'm showing it this fall at Indiana University. I'll just keep showing it at various Mm -hmm. places, Mm -hmm. University of Washington. Um, what I'm finding is that, first of all, the film is quite powerful, and it reaches people, and it's very timely. It comes, you know, in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests. It comes during a lot of debate about racial and economic inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's during a time when the labor movement is totally under attack and trying to uh, reorganize itself. And... The film addresses all of those issues in an interesting way. It's called Love and Solidarity, meaning love, on the one hand, is the nonviolent philosophy, which King enunciated even in the Montgomery bus boycott. That was the first thing he talked about was mm-hmm. love. You know, And most people think, well, love, what's, what's that got to do with building a movement? And, right. of course, that was how the movement was built in the South. Uh, and solidarity is the you know key idea for the labor movement. Mm-hmm. And so what happens in the film is that you think you're going to hear a story about the civil rights movement, and you hear a, a little of that at the beginning. Then it shifts to the Memphis sanitation strike in 1968. Mm-hmm. James Lawson was the man who invited 
King to Memphis. Um, he was the ministerial leader of the strike. And of course, we know Dr. King was murdered on April 4th, 1968. They eventually won that strike. Uh, it opened up the gates for organizing uh, public employee unions all across the country. The, Jerry Wirf, who was the president of the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, thought if they lost that strike in Memphis, it would be a blot on the name of their union. Uh, and they, they did win the strike in the end. And, you know, of course, AFSCME and other public employee unions uh, have provided the main strong point for labor uh, ever since. Mm -hmm. That's where unions have expanded. Uh, then the story takes a little twist, which is after that's over, um, Lawson is sent to Los Angeles by the Methodist Church and becomes the minister for Holman United Methodist Church, which is one of the largest black congregations in the Methodist Church. And while he's there for the next 30 years, he works on every issue. That's what somebody who has a nonviolent framework would be doing. But it, the last third of the film ends up being about Justice for Janitors, that campaign in the 1980s and 90s, and the hotel and restaurant workers uh, campaign. And it has suddenly a lot to do with immigrant workers from Central America and Mexico. And then toward the end of the film, it becomes about the DreamX students at mm -hmm. UCLA. So the film has like at least three strands, being nonviolence, labor, and then immigrant rights and poor people's campaigns. I'll go through the story of basically five interviews that sort of animate the film, one of them with Lawson for two and a half hours, and we boiled that down to, you know, a few important uh, insights that he offers. Mm -hmm. So why don't we sort of back up just a, a bit and sort of expand on some of the things that you've uh, you've touched on as you as you described the the documentary and and the story that it tells. Um, let's start with this connection that you um, brought up between the civil rights movement and the labor movement. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What connections were there between the civil rights movement and the labor movement through the 1960s? And um, then again, you know, the work that Lawson was doing at this time. Uh, I had the good fortune of being asked by Beacon Press to edit uh, Martin Luther King's labor speeches. And it's a book called All Labor Has Dignity, which was um, a phrase he used on March 18th, 1968 in Memphis mm -hmm. at a huge mass meeting. Um, I had found through my research at the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta quite a long time ago in the 90s, a file called King's Labor Speeches. And I went through all of those and then I found some more labor speeches. And then, of course, I started researching the whole area around those speeches. But I'd also been... Uh, my first book was called Southern Labor and Black Civil Rights, Organizing Memphis Workers. I've been working on this theme for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a second book called Black Workers Remember, was oral histories of the labor movement in the Deep South. And what I learned from the workers that I interviewed was that even in the South, which a lot of people thought didn't have much of a labor movement, there was a powerful labor movement before during and after the civil rights movement. 
And for black workers, that was just as important, if not more important, uh, than the civil rights movement. It was a civil rights movement within industry. So, um, you know, black workers couldn't vote, uh, but if they had an NLRB election overseen by the labor board, um, they could vote. Right. You know, they they had rights within the labor framework that they didn't have in civil society. And also within that context of industrial unions, especially, that goes back, you know, to the founding of the Congress of Industrial Organizations in the middle 1930s, which had the philosophy that you cannot organize these industries unless you organize everybody together. And that includes blacks and whites and Latinos and women and men, skilled and unskilled and so forth. It's an old idea in the labor movement, uh, going back to the Knights of Labor and the industrial workers of the world. But, you know, in the CIO, this became an operative framework that really worked. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of research on that in my earlier books. Um, and of course, what I found was that during the Cold War anti-communist fervor of the 1950s, that a lot of these links were wiped out because anybody who was for labor and for civil rights in the South was automatically called a communist and mm -hmm. run out. And then in the 60s, um, through the sanitation workers' strike and other strikes uh, and organizing by workers themselves, these links sort of became more and more apparent that, um, well, what we would say today, labor rights are civil rights. Mm -hmm. And that's what King was talking about in these speeches. Um, it wasn't new for him to talk about labor. He talked about it right from the beginning, even when he was in graduate school. But especially after the Montgomery bus boycott, he raised a lot of his money from unions. So he was constantly giving speeches to unions. Uh -huh. And in all those speeches, he always said, you know, labor and civil rights uh, are, are joined at the hip. And if the union movement doesn't take advantage of that and really build those relationships, it's making a big mistake. And of course, a lot of unions didn't do that. A lot of unions were white supremacist and exclusionary. Uh, but the best of them really did a job on building uh, a labor civil rights coalition. The March on Washington in 1963 was a great example of that. And Will Jones at the University of Wisconsin wrote a really good book um, unearthing all of the details of that. And it was as much a labor march as it was a civil rights march. Mm -hmm. So these links are very, very strong, but they're often not seen that way in the general public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you um, had also talked about the fact that uh, Lawson was, you know, very, uh, very involved in, you know, not just the, the civil rights movement, but, you know, broader movements for economic and social justice in addition to racial, racial justice. And um, through the 80s and into the 1990s, um, he became involved in the labor movement in, in Los Angeles, first with the hotel workers organizing movement, and then later, as you had mentioned, with Justice for Janitors. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how his experience experience from 
his work in the civil rights movement of the 1960s really came to infuse um, his participation in these organizing movements and the, the campaigns that sort of followed on. Somebody who really helped me to understand this uh, is a professor named Kent Wong. At uh, He's the director of UCLA Labor Center. Mm-hmm. And Kent uh, told me that the labor movement in Los Angeles went from being almost dead um, at a certain point, or at least not dead, but sort of lifeless, mm-hmm. to being very vibrant. Uh, and actually, L.A. is one of the few places in the country where the labor movement has expanded and grown. And it's done so primarily by organizing immigrant workers. And, of course, that's how a lot of the unions uh, grew in the late 19th and early 20th century was organizing immigrant workers in industry. And now it's more in the service industry. But mm-hmm. um, in, in explaining this to me, he said one of the one of the forces that made this possible uh, was James Lawson in that he helped people to see the ways that the tactics and strategies and the values of the civil rights movement and of nonviolence um, could turn efforts to get better wages and better conditions really into a social movement. Mm -hmm. So another person that is very important in this is uh, Maria Elena Durazo, who became um, the head of her union in the hotel and restaurant workers union, um, Previously, they'd had white, older male leaders who really didn't speak Spanish. They didn't speak to the workers. Um, It's really a union adrift. And she led a movement where she became the leader of that. And uh, then they met, of course, a lot of opposition, tremendous opposition from employers. And they started bringing in James Lawson and Cesar Chavez, uh, who led the Great Boycott Movement, Mm -hmm. to help them to understand how to build a social movement, that it wasn't enough just to have a union movement because they weren't going to win that way. They needed to get allies. They needed ministers. They needed students. They needed workers from various industries. And so they started building that kind of a movement. And... As Maria Elena Durazo says in the film, he started talking to Reverend Lawson and he asked us, <clears throat> what can you, uh, what is your movement about um, that's more than getting another 50 cents an hour? Uh-huh. It's sort of the question Ella Baker asked in the early civil rights movement that uh, this is more about more than a hamburger mm-hmm. right. when you're doing the lunch counter set. <laughs> sure. uh-huh. So they had a, a Chavez and Lawson had an important, they weren't the organizers, they had a teaching uh, role in this. Mm-hmm. So much and, like what he was doing in the 60s in, in some yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, very much. And and the nonviolence part of this is, you know, in a way pretty simple, but Lawson has a four-point strategy for nonviolence that he explains very well. Uh, which helps people to figure out what are the steps that you take uh, and how do you win a campaign. So that's, you know, he he was able to help people really as a teacher. And um, then the workers, of course, 
you know, were the key people that did something about it. Mm-hmm. And coalition building in a lot of ways was was very crucial to the success of, of these campaigns. And I'm curious to, to hear if you have any thoughts on what lessons can be taken away from the successes for revitalizing the labor movement in Los Angeles for the broader labor movement today. Yeah, I don't know if there's like a one, two, three list of what we can take away from it. But mm-hmm. the reason that the film is useful, I think, is that it lays out these things uh, in a very there, – there's no narrator in the film. It's just interviews with people, pictures. Uh, you sort of see what's happening as they talk about it. And then the narrators in the film, the people who are being interviewed, bring it together at the end with a couple of insights. And what it does and why it's useful is, it, for one thing, it's only 38 minutes long. We tried to keep it as short as we could. Mm-hmm. And that still gives you enough time if you're in a classroom of 50 minutes or if you're in some kind of uh, public forum, hour and 15 minutes. You can watch the film. And then discuss that very question that you're bringing up. Like, mm-hmm. what do we take out of this? What is the legacy of this? And that really is up for interpretation. It depends on what the audience is. Um, I showed it to students in at the University of Missouri, a number of whom had just been in Ferguson during the protests there. And, of course, they brought out a whole lot of questions from the film about how to successfully organize and protest and and some of them felt they could have done much better if they'd had a real, you know, structural framework. Um, and they wished that they had had that. Um, in other places like the AFL-CIO, when I showed it there, people wanted to know more about this kind of labor organizing. Mm-hmm. Other people want to know about the immigrant rights part. So every audience is a little different depending on where their interests are, but the conversation, the takeaway from the film is exactly your question. What is the legacy of these experiences and this nonviolent framework? How can we think about that history and what is it good for today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have the answer. I try to just set up the situation where people can talk about that. Right. At the beginning of the documentary, the film footage is interspersed with um, clips from the 1960s sort of juxtaposed with images and footage from more recent labor and social justice struggles. Looking at this as a product, if you will, you know, much like a book, but in a, in a different kind of medium, what connections do you want viewers to take away from the documentary between then and now? And, you know, what, you know, what for you do you think is the big takeaway from this story? Uh, I'll start with your last part there. I think the big takeaway are a couple of things that Lawson says toward the end of the film. And we got, we used interviews with him that we did in Los Angeles, but also some talks that he gave in Tacoma back in 2008 when I brought him here to our campus of the University of Washington, Tacoma. And he said, first of all, people think that violence is effective Uh, because it changes a situation. But if you look at the history of violence, what you see is it always just produces more violence. So in 
In reality, it's one of the most ineffective responses to any social situation. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, nonviolence, which people might think is, you know, pretty weak and ineffective, is not if you use it in an aggressive, militant, organized fashion, like King did, like Gandhi did, uh, where you bring the wheels uh, of society to a halt. Um, as Mario Savio said in the free speech movement, you know, somebody somewhere has to bring the wheels to a halt. Uh-huh. And um, you can do that through a mass nonviolent movement. But then Lawson says, but to do that, you have to know how to do that. Uh, you have to get your, your demands straight. You have to know, you have to find goals that you can actually achieve. And King was always doing this. It doesn't do any good to just generally look at ending segregation. Let's end this practice in this town with an agreement uh, of the businessmen in Birmingham, for instance, to take down the signs or in, or in Nashville. You, you need specific um, gains or else people aren't going to put their bodies on the line. Mm-hmm. And so some of these things are taught in the film, but they go by very quickly. Uh, what's useful then is to have a lot of discussion afterwards. And we've built a website called loveandsolidarity.com, which you can go to, which has a lot more interviews. It has a bibliography uh, where you can really go into studying this in much more detail. The film really is a way to sort of open up these questions and make people aware that there is something to learn mm-hmm. about. And I'm not Pollyannish about nonviolence. Um, I realize that, you know, there's a lot of writing going on now about self-defense, armed self-defense in the movement. Uh, and I don't think anybody, uh, partic- even King, would say that if somebody's home is attacked or the Klan is burning down your house, that people shouldn't defend themselves. But that's not what they're talking about. When they're talking about nonviolence, they're talking about a strategy for a mass movement and how can a mass movement win. And part of the way you do that is you hold up some values that most people agree with and demonstrate your movement in a way that you win over the people in society who could be on your side, but maybe think that you know, they disagree with you until they really start to understand what it is you're doing. And that's, that's been the power of nonviolence uh, in the South and in the labor movement, too. You know, that um, you need to win over allies. Nobody can do it on their own. And so that's kind of the takeaway of the film is how can we build, as Lawson says, we, you know, with massive inequality, um, he said, we have to shake up the addicted people of power and wealth and confront them. And he doesn't say, you know, destroy them. He says, try to confront them and get other people in the society to join together to change the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nonviolence is a systemic framework. It's not about just ending this injustice or that injustice. It's about the whole structure of violence, which can be mass incarceration, police brutality, poverty, um, exploitation of workers, 
sexism, racism, and discrimination against people for their sexual orientation. Lawson explains these things very well in the film better than I can as all aspects of structural violence that um, I call him a nonviolent revolutionary. He really wants to overturn, as he says in one of my books, uh, overturn all the structures of power that harass and belittle and diminish and exploit people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, honey, uh, you've given us a lot to think about, and uh, your your documentary has certainly, I'm sure, started a lot of very important conversations. So thank you very much for discussing Love and Solidarity with us and joining us on Working History. You're very welcome. I hope people get a chance to see the film. It's you can go online, loveandsolidarity.com, and find out everything you need to know about that. Okay, great. Thanks again. Thank you again to Michael Honey, director and co-producer of Love and Solidarity, the story of Reverend James Lawson. The documentary can be viewed on the Fetzer Institute's website at www.fetzer.org. That's www.fetzer.org. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. Mm-hmm.